This week on the show, we talk to you about automation and hacking your FreeBSD CLI, run your own instant messaging service on FreeBSD. You can also watch Netflix on FreeBSD, and we show a tutorial how to do that. The HardBSD January 2023 status report, how you can set up SSH keys with YubiKeys as two-factor authentication, the OpenSSH fix for a double-free memory bug, a late announcement about DiscoBSD, the next NiceBug meetings, and more in this week's episode of BSD. Now. BSD Now, episode 496, Hacking the CLI, recorded on the 15th of February, 2023. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome. We have a fresh episode prepared for you with a little bit of everything, I would say. Uh, but we're starting off with another Clara article about automation and hacking your FreeBSD CLI. That certainly sounds interesting for a lot of people, sysadmins and, well, users alike, because we all love a little bit of automation. And it starts with, as much as natural language systems have advanced, computers are still bad at understanding outputs designed for humans. Components that can output structured, machine-readable information provide a way for the data to be simply and reliably filtered, modified, formatted, and reused, improving the capability and functionality of the entire IT stack. So first, consider the server operating system, a collection of small tools and massive subsystems that work together for the benefit of the users. While many things are built to work together, countless tools require the data to be reformatted before it is useful. And managing all these systems manually can be time-consuming. I guess many of you have been there. But with automation, which, uh, which structured output greatly simplified and empowering, we can reduce human error, boost the productivity, and enable greater application interoperability, of course. Different word. Yeah, and so this is uh, mostly about libxo and being able to get JSON output from command line tools uh, because, you know, if you've ever tried to take the output of one program and make decisions on it or use it as input for another program, you know, it usually involves a bunch of awk or set or something to transform it to get just the bits of it that you want and so on. And it's always very fragile. Uh, you know, there's always some different output you didn't expect that's going to add an extra column or a keyword in a weird place. That's then going to mean what was column four isn't the same you know you're going to get different values for different rows and all kinds of stuff even looking at uh, a basic example like arp right if you do arp dash an and you get you know here's this ip address has this mac address and it's on this interface and it's permanent because it's coming from this machine uh, or this other ip address has this mac address and it expires in 394 seconds because we get it from the network and keep it for about 20 minutes and then ask again uh, and so if you build all your tooling based on those two types then suddenly somebody throws a curveball at you and you see uh here's this other ip address with a different mac address and it has an additional keyword on it published meaning that while this mac address doesn't necessarily come from this machine this machine will answer if somebody asks who has 
uh, this, or, you know, what MAC address has this IP address? Uh, this machine will now answer. It will basically do a gratuitous art being like, if somebody asks, I will answer. Oh, that's not a gratuitous art. But anyway, uh, it will answer if anybody asks. Uh, but all of a sudden, that means that, you know, if you were depending on the certain column number being whether this is Ethernet or Wi-Fi or whatever, um, that's not going to be the case because suddenly there's this unexpected keyword that's going to change all of the, the columns. And so if you just used awk to get out the parts you needed, uh, it's going to be wrong for some of the rows now, and that's not good. Uh, so we talk about libxo and to the rescue along with uh, tools like JQ. So with libxo, we can say, instead of giving me all that data as human readable text and trying to make somewhat nice columns and so on, instead, give it to me as JSON. Uh, and now I get each of the different parameters back uh, as a uh, a member of an object in JSON. So we get the IP address is this, the MAC address is that, the interface name is this, uh, permanent is true, published is true, the type is Ethernet, etc. Uh, or you can get it back in XML if you want, or whatever. Uh, but it shows how you can use that to get the different bits that you want. And then uh, we show where the real power comes from, this uh, other process called JQ, uh, which is basically uh, the awk of JSON. <laughs> so if you just pipe some JSON into JQ uh, with the parameter dot, it'll just print it out pretty printed and colorized and, and nice to read. But if you ask for a specific bit, you can pipe it in and say, you know, uh, for, e for the ARP entry, find me uh, the ARP cache, and it will print out just the subset of that. Uh, or you can say, give me the zeroth item from the ARP cache. Or, you know, give me a specific item. Give me the IP address from every item in the ARP cache, and it'll print out just a list of IP addresses. And we have examples of uh, constructing your own JSON out of it that's going to just give you pairs of IP addresses and MAC addresses in different layouts that'll be consumed differently by your application, but whichever way makes sense for your application. Yeah, very useful. And you can also feed it into like monitoring systems that take uh, XML or JSON output these days and make that easier to uh, process there. And it's a tool, uh, libxo, it's only on FreeBSD. It's not in a general Unix space. So if you want to try this out on a Linux system, you probably won't get any uh, result. Right. So libxo itself is a library that's up on GitHub and you can integrate it into any application you want. But on FreeBSD, it's built into many of the applications that are part of FreeBSD. Yeah, and the uh, uh, inclusion uh, of LibXO into various utilities hasn't been finished yet. So if you're interested in one of these things, that's a good junior project to you know, convert or teach uh, Unix or FreeBSD uh, utility in the user land uh, about LibXO and how to use that. Yeah, and basically, if you're familiar with programming in C, uh, or anything that uses printf, where you're going to have a string and some substitutions in it. You know, you have a percent %s for a string or percent %d for a decimal or whatever. Um, and in those items, uh, with libxo, you mark them up by specifying what's the name of this field. And then when you print out in XML or JSON, it skips all the words and spaces and, and uh, characters you do for, like, drawing columns and only prints out that, you know, field name equals value, and other field name equals other value, and so on. 
uh, and it makes it much easier to interpret the output. Then uh, we go one step further, and especially if you want to learn uh, Excel, one of the interesting things is there's a utility called Excel, which allows you to do this for shell scripts. Uh, so it allows you to actually, you know, use the command line to generate some JSON in a specific format. So you can say, you know, make me a pretty printed JSON and put a, a wrapper on the outside called hello or whatever. And then I want to print out the name and the date. And I'm going to run the who am I program for the name and the date command with a certain format string for the, the date. And then I'm going to also say, you know, uh, then close those brackets and so on. And it will allow you to make the hello to sh that will print out uh, this structured JSON with those fields in it. So it allows you to actually have uh, JSON output in your shell scripts. And so to be able to use the command line to construct JSON rather than doing it manually, automatically make sure things do the right thing that way. <laughs> yeah, I can see a lot of uses for that. Uh, let's jump into the next part. Uh, this is run your own instant messaging service on FreeBSD. And the URL, I mean, my kanji basics are a bit rusty at this point, but I think it's mu ri va su or ko. I'm not sure. I think it's su, um, but don't quote me on that. So that page is nicely formatted. I will definitely uh, like this uh, blinking cursor thing in the titles here. And this is about, you know, how to run your own instant messaging service on FreeBSD. Yes, if you're a person of a certain age like myself, and I imagine Benedict, uh, you remember when instant messaging was a big thing. Oh, uh, yeah. Back in the late 90s and early 2000s when we were all on ICQ or uh, AOL Instant Messenger and Yahoo Messenger and MSN and all the <laughs> like. Uh, and then as I branched out from there into IRC and then trying to have one client like uh, I think it was called Trillium originally and then became Pigeon. Uh, so, but once you had Pigeon, you could be on all those services at once with one program and just talk to everybody and not have to know which service they were on. Uh, and it was kind yeah. of helpful. And then somebody's like, what if we made it even better? Uh, and they came up with this protocol called XMPP, which was a extensible messaging protocol specifically designed around the idea of federation. Kind of think like Mastodon is trying to do for Twitter, uh, XMPP did this for instant messaging. Um, mm -hmm. And what worked really well with this is, especially back then, Google's chat feature um, used this. Uh, and so you could connect to it from XMPP. So from my XMPP client, it could appear to be online in the Google chat service uh, and on the Facebook Messenger. And like people message me like, what are you doing on Facebook this time? It's like, well, my computer's just always logged. My my messaging client is always <laughs> on. And so I'm it's on all of these services. And like uh, one of the MMOs I played also used XMPP. So I could get messages from that even when I wasn't playing the game. Uh, and all these other services mixed together. And it was really useful. Uh, and so this tutorial talks about how to set up your own Jabber server, which is an implementation of XMPP. Uh, and so, you know, they start by updating and, and setting up a FreeBSD machine. And once it's there, they install eJabberD, which is one of the uh, open source Jabber server programs. They set up some DNS because uh, they use um, SRV records to automatically find uh, the stun servers to deal with clients being behind NAT, being able to connect to each other and so on, uh, and just service discovery stuff. Uh, so they set that up, in this case, on a Volter instance running FreeBSD. And so they show how to set up uh, the server and get it all configured and let clients connect to it. 
uh, and be able to uh, use RelayD to do load balancing and, and filtering. Uh, and once that's all up and running, then you can connect a client to it uh, and also access the web interface for eJeopardy. And then setting up the right cron tabs to clean up, uh, you know, when people share files with each other, we don't want to keep them on disk forever and so on. And then it has a whole list of clients you can get. You know, there's uh, Profanity, which is a text-based client uh, available on Unix and Mac and Windows and Android even. Uh, there's GUI clients for Unix and Mac and Windows like Dino or Gadgem, uh, Conversation for Android, uh, Beagle IM uh, for Mac OS, uh, Siskin uh, for iOS and so on. All the different clients. And of course, uh, Pidgin is, uh, Pidgin is still uh, a great client that I used on Windows for a decade. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, nicely. pretty extensively. The other thing is that XMPP being an open protocol has plenty of libraries and things to be integrated. So it makes it easy to build bridges and bots and things like that. Uh, for example, one of the well-known examples is that uh, MatterBridge uh, allows you to connect XMPP to Mattermost. Uh, and you can also use services like Pushover, which is a uh, push notification thing for like server monitoring. And so you can have your servers be able to push notifications about monitoring events into instant messaging that you're using for your company or your team or whatever. Oh, yeah. And they also talk about some other things that the article doesn't cover, like, you know, make sure you don't allow SSH's root and make sure to set up fail to ban and log monitoring and uh, restricting access to the admin console for Jabberdy and all the other bits and bobs that aren't covered, but they made a list here so that you will hopefully not forget about them. And then, of course, Matrix came along and uh, did away with the whole thing, <laughs> more or less. Okay, anyway, uh, nice article. Good to get started with that. And let's go right into our news roundup because the problem with instant messaging you, everyone, well, everyone is instant messaging you when you have something better to do, like watching Netflix on FreeBSD. This is the first thing that we have in this section here. Uh, this tutorial is about watching Netflix on FreeBSD. Woohoo! Finally, we get this. This applies to all applications that require Widevine support. Yeah, Widevine uh, is the, the uh, DRM plugin. Yeah, that's the yeah underlying. Uh, thing that makes it all work. This includes Amazon Video, Disney Plus, or Spotify, and many more, um, and also supports sound, webcam, and even hardware acceleration. And so they touched in an earlier article, binary Linux binary compatibility, Ubuntu on FreeBSD, when while Linux jails can be truded on FreeBSD, allowing Linux applications to run on FreeBSD. That's the cool thing. These applications include, like the Chrome browser, which supports DRM, and thus also Netflix and others. So whatever you want to have, you need to have. Yeah, but in particular, uh, this is uh, a GitHub project called Linux Browser Installer, uh, which is a, a shell script that will go and set up the environment without you having to build a whole Ubuntu jail or anything. You can just say Linux Browser Installer, install Chrome, and it'll configure a CH root and put the the latest Ubuntu and a working version of Chrome in that and set it all up. Uh, if you go to the GitHub repo, it does talk about the fact that, you know, this will, uh, it's not so much that it interferes, but the, the FreeBSD's Linux binary emulation can only have one prefix set, uh, one specific path to where it should find all the, the Linux binaries. 
And so you can't, you know, mix this with having, you know, the Red Hat stuff from ports happening at the same time. Uh, but, you know, uh, the Linux browser installer supports a whole bunch of different browsers. So if you don't want to use Chrome, it also has like Brave and Vivaldi and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, and it gets it all just working on FreeBSD. Uh, yep. And once you have that, then... Is it, wait, isn't that a duplication down there? Yeah. That's kind of a duplicate here. Okay. So, but anyway, uh, they have uh, the instructions in their blog post, how to get started watching Netflix. And please do that after this show. Just don't hit stop and do everything else except that. So keep watching or listening to this one. Uh, maybe your last episode, but you know, when you're on Netflix, you kind of have time. Uh, done for other things. Anyway, uh, next up we have the Harden BSD January 2023 status report. And that gives us a report about what's happening in Harden BSD land, uh, written by Sean Webb, of course. And he writes it has been a number of months since the last status report. Uh, he got really sick in November and December and is now recovering from COVID. Oh dear. Uh, best wishes for speedy recovery if it's already been too long. But um, Good to hear that you have time to, or uh, uh, well enough to write the report. Regardless, there have been a ton of enhancements and goings on in the project. So in source, uh, he writes that DevD is now compatible or compiled as position independent executable. Uh, there's a link to a FreeBSD commit uh, that introduced the ability to easily force a remote process to perform a syscall. And this has been restricted by the ptrace syscall hardening sysdtl node by default. And while an attacker can force a remote process to execute syscalls, they think uh, they're exposing an API to make this easier, not attractive. Okay. Uh, they also have a, a message here that uh, Netlink, which landed in FreeBSD recently uh, and is enabled by default in generic, has been disabled by default in hardened BSD and marked as insecure because it's new. Uh, and it looks like they found uh, a number of null dereferences that they had to fix in Netlink as well, uh, which might have been led to the above. Uh, they also fixed bugs in the insecure kmod loading enforcement code. Uh, so in Harden BSD, there's a way to say don't load any modules we marked as insecure, but it turns out it wasn't working right, so they fixed the bug there. Uh, they also introduced a new feature of malloc hardening, a new kernel option uh, with Harden kmalloc enables all malloc uh, from these are kernel malloc uh, hardening features by default. The only feature implemented currently is zeroing allocations on creation and free. Uh, to enable allocation zeroing without having to compile a custom kernel, you can just set the kmalloc underscore zero sysctl. They've also uh, created an opt-in mechanism for uh, the compiler flag trivial variable auto initialization. Uh, so this basically allows anytime you uh, instantiate a variable, it's going to zero it all out automatically, whereas normally you'd have to explicitly do that in the code or, or set it as a compiler flag. Uh, and they've set it so that uh, individual modules can opt into this feature, and they've set it by default now on Vertio Net, Netlink, ZFS, Linux KPI, and TempFS. And then lastly, they updated UUID Gen to now generate UUID v4 identifiers by default. Uh, it has a new option, capital R, which provides backwards compatibility and generating the v1 uh, UUIDs instead. Uh, ports didn't seen much, haven't seen much change, but regular maintenance, so not too much report there. And he also writes about uh, donations uh, which have been offered to the project, and he will sit down and switch to administrative side of the house for that. 
and uh, his goals for February are basically uh, doing the coordination with the Heart Beast Foundation Board of Directors, uh, doing the donation receipts for everyone who donated uh, 250 or above for a tax deduction purpose, and uh, provide uh, or give better cooling to the unfinished basement to prepare for the summer, and that uh, keeps the server running. And also documentation, keep making more progress and updating our wiki with relevant documentation. Okay, good to have. The next thing that we have is how to set up SSH keys with YubiKey as a two-factor authentication with U2F or FIDO2, which is a cool new thing to protect yourself with an additional factor. Yeah, uh, so they talk a little bit about the basics, what SSH key is and how it works. Uh, and then, you know, also what a bastion host is, but then they get into what is a YubiKey and how the FIDO U2F support in OpenSSH works, uh, having been added in OpenSSH 8.2. Um, and specifically the two new key types that FIDO devices can support, which are ECDSA-SK and ED25519-SK. Uh, and then they show how to verify that the version of OpenSSL or OpenSSH that you have in your machines is new enough to be able to do this, uh, and also how to check the firmware version of your YubiKey to know if it can support the newer key type. Because uh, older ones can only do the ECDSA, uh, whereas most likely you want to use the ED25519 uh, if your YubiKey is new enough. So they show how to use SSH keygen to generate the key and uh, enroll it on your YubiKey uh, and get it all set up and running. And then once you have it, set up, then you have to install the public key on the machines you want to be able to log into. Uh, and then once that's going, you can then, you know, SSH to those hosts and use the SSH key protected on the YubiKey so that you have to, you know, use your thumbprint or whatever to unlock it so that, you know, your SSH keys are protected uh, and by a factor other than just, you know, the key sitting in your home directory, maybe with a passphrase on it, but uh, whereas now it's on a, a physical token. They also talk about dealing with what if you lose or break your YubiKey and, you know, having a backup YubiKey and maybe a, a break glass SSH key stored somewhere uh, or something like the uh, Shamar's uh, secret sharing where you can have a break glass key that requires, you know, N of M people in your team uh, to agree to that it's time yeah, to break yeah. the glass and Fire get this key to, to get back into a system uh, or, or to get back into uh, the system when you locked out because you lost your YubiKeys or your 2FA is broken or whatever. It's definitely something uh, we've noticed in the news a lot is that oftentimes it's the recovery mechanism for 2FA that is the biggest security problem. It's like 2FA does all this stuff, but if you just call support and pretend to be the person, you can get them to disable hmm. 2FA. You just say you lost your phone or whatever. Uh, and so then they turn it off and then somebody can get in and that's a problem. And so having a uh, having thought about what happens when I lose my YubiKey or my phone stops working or I get a new phone or whatever, uh, is really important when setting up anything like this to make sure you're thinking about what, how's this going to work when it goes badly, not just how is it going to work when it's working the way I want yeah, it to. It's like testing your backups rather than just doing them. Just making them and hoping. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And the article walks that, uh, or motivates that and walks you through the necessary steps. Uh, then we have that uh, OpenSSH fixes a double free memory bug that's pokeable over the network. That is serious. So hopefully you have updated by now. Uh, of course, they start off with a bit of an introduction, what OpenBSD is, well known amongst sysadmins, 
and of course they produce the OpenSSH toolkit and is of course in most operating systems in there even though they don't get too much credit for it and then there's a little bit of an explanation about telnet and where we all came from and why S yeah why ssh was invented and uh you know when strong cryptography used to be something that it, you weren't allowed to have uh but yes then they get into the actual bug fix uh which is a new uh, release of OpenSSH 9.2 which fixes a bug introduced in 9.1 so if you're coming from before that you don't have a problem there but it says uh, fix a pre-authentication double free memory fault introduced in OpenSSH 9.1 this is not believed to be exploitable and it occurs in the unprivileged pre-authentication process that is subject to root and further sandboxing of most major platforms uh, so they don't think it's that big of a problem but I still definitely want to let everybody know that this is a, a thing and that you want to upgrade to avoid the problem. Double freeze are, are very interesting because they can cause very strange crashes because basically at some point OpenSSH allocated some memory uh, and then later freed it. Uh, and then in the meantime, somebody else might have allocated that memory or possibly another part of OpenSSH and is using that memory, but then the first process frees it oh. again. Uh, and because it's been allocated, the operating system is like, yeah, okay, so I'll free that now. Uh, but then the second thread that, you know, allocated its memory and hasn't freed it yet, doesn't know somebody else has gone and freed it behind its back. And so it tries to access that memory. And, you know, that's either leads to basically a use after free where we're uh, interpreting garbage or the wrong information or who knows what uh, from whatever that memory is. Because it could have been handed out to a third different thing by then uh, who's written who knows what to it. Uh, and if the attacker can control all of that, which they would be quite difficult, um, then they might be able to cause it to read the wrong thing and, and make a decision based on that. But more likely what it means is you could actually just crash the program in a weird place and you try to access memory and it's like, oh, that, that memory's already been freed though. It's like, yeah, but I didn't free it. Nobody else was supposed to be able to free it. It's my memory. Uh, so they fix that bug. Okay. And so get OpenSSH 9.2 at least, and that should be in there. Yeah, and uh, this article has a great breakdown of looking at the original bug they were trying to fix. So in OpenSSH 9.0, the code looked like this. So then they tried to fix a small bug there, and then they changed it to like this. Um, but then that leads to this problem where, whoops, we might have uh, freed the wrong thing. Mm, depending on the uh, if statement. Yeah, where basically they're uh, allocating something new and freeing the old one where they actually meant to free the first of the new ones and then set that to the the second of the new ones uh resulting in the the bug oh, okay yeah this they compared the two uh, code sections yeah and uh, this, their summary here is as the OpenSSH team suggests exploiting this bug will be hard uh, not least because of the limited privilege of that sshd program uh while it's you know it's specifically the part of SSH that's accepting random connections from the internet. So it's very locked down. But nonetheless, uh, they reported it as a security hole because that's what you're supposed to do. And if you're uh, writing code in C, remember that no matter how experienced you are, memory management is very easy to get wrong. So take extra care. And they have some notes. But yes, Rust is a, and its modern friends will help you write correct code. But sometimes you can still, uh, you still need to use C. And even if you're using Rust, it doesn't guarantee you will stop writing incorrect code just because uh, the programming language will detect more of your mistake. Yep. So definitely good to have. And 
don't forget to open uh, to donate something to OpenBSD uh, Foundation so that developments like this still happen and that OpenSSH still gets you know features and bug fixes like that. Uh, then next we have a bit of a late announcement, but better late than never. It's about Disco BSD 2.0 that was <laughs> released on December 31, 2022. So we're a bit late, but nevertheless, it's good to have mentioned here. And what is Disco BSD, you ask? Same thing I asked five minutes ago, and now I know. And I will share this with you. This is the first official release of Disco BSD, the announcement reads. The multi-platform 2.11 BSD-based operating system for microcontrollers. Aha. In addition to the PIC32 MX7 support in DiscoBSD PIC32 inherited from RetroBSD, the release of DiscoBSD 2.0 supports the ARM Cortex M4 based STM32F4 family of microcontrollers from ST Microelectronics in the new DiscoBSD STM32 port. And so DiscoBSD is a descendant of 2.11 BSD and inherits its strong BSD heritage. Userland is powerful, full-featured, and com comfortable to any competent Unix user, as it is derived from the rich 4.3 BSD Tahoe userland. Install, build, and debug instructions can be found in the README file. Yeah, so it's basically uh, started from RetroBSD, but is a mix of the older 4.11 BSD kernel rather than the, the newer 4.2 or 4.3, but with the newer userland so that you have more of the utilities that you're used to, but still fits in this tiny... Uh, little PIC32 or STM32 microcontrollers, which, you know, are very, very, very small computers. Mm -hmm. Like, orders of magnitude smaller than the Raspberry Pi. They're just microcontrollers, not really a general-purpose computer. Yeah, for specific. But great way to keep, you know, the original BSD code usable today is that, you know, these tiny computers that are, you know, as big as a whole computer was back in the day, uh, in the 70s, um, Rather than trying to shoehorn a modern operating system into something that small, why don't we use something designed for a computer that was that small? Yeah. So, good to have these in case someone still needs that. Um, ah, let's move on to the next one. Remember Nicebug? And they were talking about a next meeting in March, in April, certainly May. So, Pat McAvoy lets us know in the mailing list. Uh, Hello, friends, he writes. I'm delighted to announce we have a new place to meet at Manhattan's Upper East Side. It is very similar to our old haunt. <laughs> a room all to ourselves, but with the option to open windows on two sides of the building, allowing for plenty of ventilation. It has a projector, we can, uh, a screen drop, can drop down, and a door to isolate us from whatever is going on in the bar or restaurant downstairs. The only thing we need now are speakers for March 1st and April 5th. We have a speaker for May 3rd, and we'll be making the announcement when the time is right. And he's looking forward to this returning to meet in person and hopes that the larger space and general ventilation will help us or them to just do that in safety. Be well. Oh, good to know. Having regular nice buck meetings is good to see again in the new year with the conferences starting to uh, come up again or restart there their efforts to talk and meet yeah well, at least user groups and stuff yeah yeah good thing and uh we look forward if there's any reports from any talks that were given we will definitely cover this in the show bsd now is sponsored by tarsnap everyone needs backups and tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe but also secure 
Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud, so that only you have the ability to read your data. TarSnap takes your data and works out what data is duplicated so that bandwidth can be saved. It then assembles your data into compressed blocks, encrypts them with your local private key that never leaves your system, and then uploads those encrypted blocks to the cloud. So even if someone is able to obtain your backed up data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it and access your files. TarSnap is easy to use. If you can use Tar, then you can use TarSnap. TarSnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. TarSnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code to make sure it does what we say it does. TarSnap also does bug bounties if you can find errors in the code. With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse to not have good backups. Go to tarsnap.com to learn more. And it's feedback and questions time already. And we got questions, luckily, to our address, feedback at bsdnow.tv. And if you want to be in this segment, then you better send us a question. And the first one is Daniel with a Plan 9 related question. Plan 9 lives, to be exact. Goes like this. Hey, Alan, Benedict, JT, and Tom. Happy Chinese New Year. Oh, yes, great. They have, is it, was it the year of the monkey? The dove? Ah, I forgot. Sorry. Anyway, I'm very glad that you are featuring Plan 9 bits and pieces every once in a while on the show. And so I would like to take this opportunity to invite you and the Beast community to the International Workshop on Plan 9, which is IWP9 as the number.org, which had been resting for a while and now comes back to life in the year of the rabbit. The rabbit it is, right? Uh, yeah. Okay. 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 And is it? Is it not fitting that the mascot thingy for Plan 9 was the, the weird and rabbit it, thing? Even better, right? <laughs> that is certainly a rabbit. Coincidentally, the Plan 9 mascot is Glenda, the bunny after all. Let's take that as a good sign. Oh, yeah. The workshop will take place in Toronto, Canada at the University of Waterloo from April 21st to 23rd. And call for papers? I would say that Waterloo is very much not Toronto. Okay, that's a Canadian like, thing. I... <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe like they're like a hundred kilometers. That's apart a bit more something. distance. Yeah, it's probably the closest, but the biggest. Yes, Waterloo University. <laughs> okay, um, so the call for papers is open right these days. Uh, more details details are on the website, and they're looking forward to seeing exciting contributions. And will gladly welcome everyone interested in Plan Nine and the related OS development. Maybe it even fits well for. Alan, maybe being not too far. Okay, here we go at distance again. Uh, but keep on with the great show and see you soon at FOSDEM. Oh, yeah, I wasn't at FOSDEM. Oh, we weren't at FOSDEM, actually. So why don't we just say uh, see you at BSD CAN, maybe? How about that? And since that meeting is in April, BSD CAN will be in May, so not too far away. Uh, yeah, good to know about this. Um, yeah, we, we don't cover Plan 9 too much or too often but sometimes bits and pieces are interesting enough you know when interesting things come up uh you know it is interesting plan nine had a lot of really interesting ideas that their time has come and gone and come again yeah or people just uh, were sticking with unix and found everything good there without having to jump to the next uh, thing plan nine nevertheless it's it's an operating system and people use it yes uh and i think i actually met the 
the faculty sponsor of this conference when uh, we had a little BSD hackathon at probably the same building at the University of Waterloo. So I read about another conference in Ottawa about a Unix-related thing, but I'm blanking on what it was. Hmm. Anyway, I was looking at conferences this year, uh, doing travel plans or just looking around and found one that was also in in Ottawa. And I was like, oh, that must be BSDCAD. No, it's not. (laughs) And it certainly wasn't PGCon, which is also, I think, two weeks apart from BSDCAD, either before or after. Uh, But yeah, thank you, Daniel, for this. And uh, hope to meet you one day at either BSDCAN or any other place. Okay, that was uh, this message. And next one is Jason with an NVD driver uh, question, I guess. Daniel writes, hi, everyone. First, I've been a listener for years now. Oh, wow, that's truly dedication. A beneficial podcast to have out there. Thank you. Thanks for all that you put into the show. You're welcome. Uh, one suggestion I had is to not read articles in their entirety. Yeah, we try to get better at that to just tease it and people can read the rest about it. Yeah, but it's good feedback. It's, it's hard to summarize the whole article without spending a great deal of time digesting the whole article first. But mm-hmm. yeah, I'm sure you've noticed me nudging. Yeah, yeah we, sometimes it's, oh, we spent too much time on this. We should move on. There are other articles waiting. Yeah, he finds it more valuable in hiding the article, pulling out the key pieces of information. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. Good to have this feedback. Now to his question. I've been using the NVD driver for for my NVMe drives, Samsung 980, for over a year now since I built the machine. And it's mostly been working fine. I've read about the NVA driver and wanted to try it out to see if it was more performant, etc. I switched to using it by adding hwnvme.use underscore nvd equals zero in bootloader.com. And it rebooted fine and it now uses the NVA driver. Wow, okay, that's possible. However, now Zpulsatus is showing. Ah, here we go. There's a bit of a problem here. Uh, it's more of a warning than a problem. Uh, so in particular, ZFS is saying, uh, while this pool is created with a block size of four kilobytes, the drive claims its native sector size is 16 kilobytes. Ah, oh, okay. Uh, and then he says, I've been using the NVD for a long time without any errors or warnings. Uh, why did switching to the NDA driver cause this? And better yet, how can I fix it and still use the NDA? Uh, other than ignoring the warnings. The drives are 4K sector drives, and that's what the pool is using. So I'm not sure why ZFS is reporting that they're 16K sector drives as well. Um, I think in this case is because NDA is saying that they are 16K sector drives, um, which very likely is actually true. Um, and so there's not really a way to get rid of the warning, but you know the drives support emulating the smaller sector size and will continue to work just fine. Um, and I don't think you actually would want to create the pool with a 16K native record size because it would waste a lot of space. Mm. Uh, while it might improve performance a little bit, uh, in general, the NVMe is going to be fast enough. It's not a big deal. Um, so if you're overly sensitive about it, you can just switch back to the NVD, which I guess doesn't expose the, the larger size. Um, I think if you use the NVMe control utility, you can query the drive about its sector sizes. Some of the disks, I don't think the Samsung, but some drives do let you actually reformat the drive with different native sector sizes. Um, but you know that involves reformatting all of the metadata in the NVMe, so it wipes the the content entirely. And so you say, and you know the default is probably still the best and the optimal for yeah. that disk. So you wouldn't fiddle with a shift to increase it to that value. Well, so. Uh, you can you can't change the a shift after you create the pool when you're before you create the pool you could configure it this way like if you had been using nda when you created the pool it probably would have gone to the mm-hmm. larger size 
uh, by default. Uh, I don't think that's what you would have yeah, wanted. Yeah, probably not. Because uh, you cannot get back uh, to the uh, other. Yes. Uh, well, and in particular, the space in the label is, is limited, right? We have 128K for Uber blocks. When drives had 512 byte sectors, we used two of them together for each Uber block, and then we had 128 Uber blocks. With 4K native disks, we're down to 32. Oh, that's blocks. a bit less. If you go to, yeah. uh, if you go to 16K native, then you're only got room for eight Uber blocks, which is a very small ring. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's not the end of the world. Uh, you don't have to do anything. You can just ignore the warning, uh, or switch back to NVD if you want it to go away. The main difference with NDA is it goes through the cam layer and acts more like a regular hard drive. Uh, as far as the way FreeBSD routes it through its storage stack. Um, whereas NVD treats it more like a, a separate type of interface. Um, I mostly use NDA, uh, but again, that's mostly because I'm also mixing it with hard drives and it's easier to have everything work the same way and show up in cam control and, and respond to the same stuff. Um, but I don't expect you will see much of a difference on your Samsung 980 using NVD versus NBA or NDA. Okay. And if the warning bothers you that much, then switching back to NVD might be the right answer. Yeah, I think... Uh, this will be the future and a lot of more people will have this or at least encounter this warning and the rest of the pool is yes. fine. Uh, well, in, in general, we're looking at in, on the ZFS side of what we can do to uh, not run out of Uberblock slots the same way uh, using a different pattern when overwriting them so that, you know, because the main reason we don't want to use Uberblocks at less than a sector size is that means while we're writing it, could get shorn, right? Like if, if the power goes out in the middle of writing the Uber block, if we're uh, having to read 16 Uber blocks and then change one of them to a newer one and then write all 16, if we mess the, if we get cut off halfway through doing that, then who knows how many of the Uber yeah, blocks we get. Much, uh, um, and so looking at doing it, but in a, such a way where instead of a ring buffer where they're all in order, we would uh, stagger them so that when we do that and we risk damaging some of them, uh, we're damaging like every eighth Uber block uh, ends up in the same sector instead of eight Uber blocks in a row. Or instead of, yeah, instead of 16 Uber blocks in a row being in the same sector, it would just be every eighth Uber yeah, block. Yeah, you would limit the damage. Uh, well, we would damage the same number, but it would be every eighth one instead of a string of 16 of them in Not a row. The neighbors. Yeah, so that if we don't, we at least only have to go back one more Uber block to get, or one more, go back one transaction to get our working one instead of having to go back like 16 mm, transactions, which is a long one. Uh, but yeah, it's more complicated. We'll have to. Okay, see, uh, there's developments going on and with new drives, ZFS also needs to change. And yeah, people are working on that. That's good to know. Yeah, uh, because in particular, there looks like there's coming some Micron drives with 64K as the native sector size. Oh, here we go. <laughs> in which case, you could only have two Uber blocks and that would not work. Well. <laughs> that would be <laughs> too critical. Well, and in particular, even in ZFS, you wouldn't, you'd almost certainly not want to do that. You'd want to use the emulation and have the drive do some read modify update. But also, is there things ZFS could do to avoid having to do that too often and, and make it easier on the drive and avoid? causing this wear and tear on the, the flash uh, when updating stuff. And you can't just say, okay, we will always have this fixed number of Uber blocks, no matter how big the block size is. Well, we can look at doing that, but then we have to look at how we're going to store them. 
in like what order we're going to write them on the disk so that they don't we don't run them up because right now they're just stored in a sorted list right and we just overwrite the oldest one with the newer one each time but that means if we in doing that we're damaging the ones before and after then yeah, we really right. hurt how fast we can import the pool and how much data loss happens after a power failure and we don't we want to keep that minimal yeah okay uh we will watch the space and uh, things that develop there in zfs land of course and uh by now people should be fine with the blocks they have okay that brings us to this week's episode to the end of course uh i never thought we could get through it but uh we did so hopefully you had found something interesting for you and uh if not then just wait for the next episode next week at the usual time, at the usual date.